Greetings from the humongous. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Get to the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no time for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grab-assing pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. All right, we're back. We're back. Film driven. We're not driving still again, not Steve. Driving. Still, still not, not driving. Still not driving. Damn it. Maybe by the time we get to the 90s. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll it's coming. It's coming. But this is uh, another in our series of podcasts covering one of our favorite decades, the 1980s. The 1980s. That's right. And uh, today we're going to talk about specifically... Science fiction movies in the 1980s. Oh, that's a big subject. It's a huge subject, Steve. It's really... I, we may need two episodes for this. What wow. do you think? Two, I don't know. maybe hour Well, and a half? but as one of our... Uh, one of the things we'll explore is how a lot of the science fiction movies of the 80s are actually... Uh, they could also be the action movies of the 80s, the comedies of the 80s, the, yep. the cop procedurals of the 80s. Absolutely. They're, the... the 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 thing about science fiction movies in the eighties, as huge as, as it is a subject, I mean, you could make one kind of like overreaching statement about it. The eighties is when science fiction became the primary big budget genre that Hollywood put out. Yeah, like and it has arguably remained so into the twenty twenties. Arguably, uh, some people would say that maybe superheroes have taken it over. But, I, yeah, and you know there was you know there was a time when westerns were a big hit. There were time, but. Yeah, well, science I mean, the fiction movies. Mo- films are under the science fiction I umbrella. Think are under the science fiction umbrella because it's a big umbrella. It's a big umbrella. Yes, depending on your point of view, science fiction movies can involve uh, time travel. They can involve switching identities. They can involve powers that take place. You know, everything's on Earth. Or you know, some people think a science fiction movie has to involve something from another planet. Even if the movie, did, you know, it's an alien right. on our planet or it takes place right. on another planet, but that would be a science fiction movie. Right. A lot of times that's the lazy version. That is the lazy version. And, and, and again, I want to, you know, I don't want to talk about Star Wars on this show. We're going to have to. You can't get around Star Wars. But you can talk about, and we'll devote some time uh, to Star Wars in another episode. But right now it seems to me, like for me, Star Wars is not, it's not even science fiction. It has some of the trappings of science fiction. It's set in space, you know, lasers, everybody. There's robots and androids and stuff like that, but it's really not. It's more of a fantasy. It is. I mean, it's a fantasy that takes place, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, (coughs) In the past. Right. Well, (laughs) uh, it's a fairy tale. But it is like the world of Star Wars devotes barely any time into how that world works. I mean, they go into a little bit of how, like, 
maybe the Force works, which is almost the religion of the movies. Right. But but there's not a lot of like no one in Star Wars spends any time explaining how they like figured out uh, the jump to light speed, like how that technology works. None of that. Yeah, there's no scientific pretense in Star Wars. I, I mean, it 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 just it it's just a fairy tale, and it has wizards and knights and princesses and all that stuff. It's just set in a world that is kind of science fictiony. Yeah, but I would argue that. Star Wars is the maybe number one reason, as you say, science fiction became the predominant genre in Hollywood. That people were, that rightly or wrongly, the uh, the people who were handing out checks in Hollywood looked at Star Wars and said, what's the deal with these movies? Why are they so popular? The kids love science fiction. That's right. That's right. It would, Star Wars was such a huge hit in 76, right? Or 77. 77, 77 right? That that I think it, it was one of the films that changed Hollywood and the way Hollywood works, and 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 also, it was so well done. Like it wasn't the first science fiction movie that was well done. Like I would argue, Stanley Kubrick's 2001: Space Odyssey was the real breakthrough. I mean, in terms of um, the look of the film, in terms of the special effects, in terms of sort of the intellectual ambition of the film. Yes. But certainly, when Star Wars came out, it was. Um, yeah, it was a game changer. It sure, changed and Hollywood. that's I mean, so Star Wars was seventy seven, Empire Strikes Back in nineteen eighty, and then a little movie called E. T. in eighty two. Those three movies, so we're talking in like a six year span of time. Those were three of the highest grossing movies of all time. Like even today, adjusted for inflation, just I mean, blockbusters. To call them a big hit is yeah, yeah absolutely. And 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 again, you know. You made me talk about Star Wars. I know. Why am I talking about <laughs> Star Wars? But but I have to say that for me, one of the life-defining movie-going experiences is actually the second Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back, which came out in 1980. Right, kicking off the right, 80s. Kicking yes, off yeah. the 80s. Brilliant. And here is the... I mean, and that film has to be given credit for not only changing... Changing the concept of a film series and what a like a franchise could be for better or for worse, sure. but also just being so friggin' good, you know, yeah. it just be it's it's just such a great follow up to Star Wars Episode Four, as the kids call it now. Uh, the it it was it was great. I remember seeing it. I I remember it, the first movie I saw in the United States as as a child was wow. Star Wars. And and then and I was blown away by it, but I didn't fully understand it. Somehow, The Empire Strikes Back. Well, by the time that came out, a couple of months later, I got it. It made yeah. sense, and it it was powerful. So, Star Wars, big props to Star Wars. But yeah, definitely. I mean that that change that that along with ET. Everything started coming out. Everything changed. I mean, uh, the first Star Trek movie, I believe, came out. After Star Wars, correct? It came out after Star Wars. Well, that that I mean, was the I know, second movie I've seen in a movie theater, Star Trek. Well, I know you're more of a, a, a Star Trek aficionado than I am, but I have to imagine that so Star Trek is something that, you know, started out as a TV series that, while beloved, wasn't, I mean, it, it didn't last a lot. It wasn't like a gigantic hit, correct? Right, it was a little right. bit of a cult favorite TV show. But then oh. in the wake of the success of the Star Wars movie... 
you know, they're like, well, maybe we can make some movies out of this property. Yeah, yeah. They, the Paramount had the property, I imagine, and they had all the people that were involved with the property. So they made, they were like, okay, let's make a movie. And not only did they make a movie, but they made a movie with a huge budget. I mean, yeah. Star, the first Star Trek film, the motion picture, uh, is serious science fiction. It, it deals with real, like, again, and we'll go, we'll go back to what science fiction actually means. It means different things to different people, but there is such a thing as serious science fiction, and you have to include Star Trek, the motion picture, in that in in that pocket, and we'll talk about others, too, but it's more serious than Star Wars. Again, Star Wars is more fantasy sure. sense in a science fiction world, but Star Trek, the motion picture, it was very serious science fiction. It was so serious, I fell asleep, and I've seen it several times. It was, it, like, when it came out, I, I went and, like, I slept through it at some point, and I'm like, I got to see it again. I didn't understand what happened. Still didn't understand what happened. What I did understand didn't seem like that big a deal. It was... A good attempt at serious science fiction, which instantly abandoned. Any- they did. Well, that's what the Star Warsification of science fiction, where they're like, let's dumb down the philosophical and or science elements, play up the adventure aspect right, of it, right. keep the aliens. And so that's why the subsequent Star, uh, Star Trek movies of the 80s were much more adventure-driven films. True. And... True. Huge hits. Huge hits. And also, beyond adventure-driven, I, I would say character-driven, because the, I don't think the people who made Star Trek the motion picture have actually watched Star Trek the TV show. <laughs> so they didn't understand that it was a human interaction show as opposed to just a science fiction or whatever. I mean, they, 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 they were confused sure. about the overall arc of the show. It was to their credit that they made a film as good as Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is a fantastic movie on every level. It's powerful, it's smart, it's well-written, it's exciting, it's got a great villain. It, it, it looks like it's about half the budget of, of the motion picture. I mean, literally, yeah. they, they seem to have severely lowered the budget. The motion picture is all about the visuals, they're flying, there's a lot of lights, it's trippy and crazy and all that stuff. Second one, down to earth, characters talking to one another, joking, talking about serious philosophical issues, absolutely great. But also just a concrete bad guy, like a very, like, this is the villain. That's right, that's right. They had a very strong villain in Ricardo Montalban. They really did not have a villain of that magnitude ever since then, you know. Well, he's a great villain, but at least they, yeah, they had clear part of the... Star Trek. yes. And uh, part of the thing about the first Star Trek movie is it was less clear, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> the V'ger, right? The... Well, yeah, yeah. It, again, it was a lot more cerebral. They were, it, was a, it was a very science fiction-y concept, you know, right out of, you know, Asimov or, the, you know, it's, it, it was sort of, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it, they, they aimed high. But I think they aimed higher than they, they really should have. But again, because they didn't really understand the hu- the inner human aspect that, that was the engine of the series, they they kind of missed the boat. So it was very dry. It was it was not there was not a lot of like interaction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but they got it they got it straight and they, they corrected the course, right? They reset that franchise. But so then in the eighties what I have to imagine just every producer in Hollywood was running around looking at scripts and everything that passed their desk thinking like, you know, this is pretty good. Is there any way we can put an alien and or a robot in it? Right. Because then it is money in the bank. 
And that led to some really interesting results, that we got some really bad sci-fi movies, uh, some schlocky stuff. But then also, um, maybe a boom time for if you had an idea that involved robots, uh, you know, like, now is your time. Right, right. And uh, speaking of, you know, one of the stars of the Star Wars movies, Harrison Ford, also made a very prominent sci-fi movie in the yeah. early 80s. In 82, yeah. Based on a uh, philosophical short story by Philip K. Dick, right? Right. It's not even that short a story. It's pretty long. Well, <laughs> but I, I don't, right. I forget when, when, do you know when that story was published? I'm assuming I think that story was published in the 60s. Okay, yeah. but yeah. so like, if you are, you know, if you're Ridley Scott or whoever, and you're like, I would like to make a movie out of this, Maybe in 1975, people were like, get the hell out of here. Exactly. We're not financing right. that. But in 1981, they're they're like, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot and let's put a lot of money in it and really go high. And it stars high. Han Solo. Oh, my God. And it's directed by a guy who just did Alien, which was a huge hit, yes. of course. And they're like, oh, my God, he's making another sci-fi movie? This is like, like money in the bank. So they came up with this extremely cerebral and extre- extremely intellectual movie that Blade Runner is, that they, they try to, you know, they released it, they, did, they, they think they got it wrong, they didn't have enough faith in it, they put a voiceover, which I personally like, because that was what I saw first. But, you know, that's, a, that, that's, that's of course, a great, a great film. It was difficult to make, and it was kind of slapped together in many ways, but just worked out great, man. Sometimes the gods of cinema looked down on you. Yeah, and it was not a huge hit at the time, no, right? It was yeah, not. it's a Blade Runner's interesting because Blade Runner does have all these philosophical elements, but they're almost like buried beneath a very straightforward story. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. there's there's an angle you can look at Blade Runner and it's extremely simple, which is about there are these androids on the run and this other guy has to go find them. Right. And, and then at the end of the movie he does. Yeah, and I mean, like that's uh, or they find him. I'll be honest. The very first time I saw Blade Runner, I I saw it long after you know everybody told me how great Blade Runner was, and I was like, you know, this plot fits on like the back of a napkin, at least right. in terms of the right. action that right. unfolds. Right, it's um, all philosophy. It's also I have argued for years that every movie that pretends to show in air quotes the future. The future. Is everything is post Blade Runner, right. like that whole thing where like there's advertising everywhere, and lots of the planet just looks like people's kind of like the most hyper version of to- Tokyo, <laughs> like that's Blade Runner as far as I know invented that, and it's that a game is changer. yeah, it's absolute game changer in terms of the look, the art direction, the design. Um, just amazing. When I was in film school, one of the teachers there is this man named uh, Chuck Guntner, who was the sound mixer on one of your favorite movies, After Hours. <laughs> and uh, but I remember him telling us that apparently, uh, you know, in the early '90s or whatever, whenever sound guys would get together and have some beers and talk about like what movie had like the best sound design, the answer was Blade Runner. Like they it's, said, yeah. and what the guy argued was that Blade Runner introduced the concept of depth of field and sound that they had never seen that before that there were like sounds in the foreground and then sounds in the background and it's all layered there in a mix and if you really and they just said that the sound design on blade runner just absolutely changed how people thought of what you could even do with sound design in movies yeah I love it. Absolutely. It's, it's, and it's so true. I mean, so much attention is given to the visuals of the film, which are 
<clears throat> groundbreakingly used may not necessarily be groundbreaking in terms of the actual effects used because, well, again, they used Douglas Trumbull, who was who was the guy that Kubrick used in 1968 when he yeah. made 2001. So, and you see similarity in the way the the light sources are approached and so on and so forth. And it's not it's not even a, that far removed from the quality of 2001. It's just how it's used, the tastefulness, other elements of the design. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a gorgeous film. It's a gorgeous sounding film, and uh, it was a game changer. Uh, but it was not a hit. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of, like, what was greenlit, it might have led people to the wrong lesson. <laughs> like, they're like, you know, maybe they're like, maybe they looked at Blade Runner and thought it was too philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it I, it certainly was too philosophical, but it, it certainly, it's it's gained stature very steadily since its release. I Again, for me, it's, it's a very... Um, kind of formational film, you know, like I, I was into movies before and then I saw Blade Runner and then my excitement about movies expanded ba just based on seeing that film and then seeing it again and trying to understand it. The fact that I didn't understand it fully was confusing and, and exciting. It's all those things. It's, it's uh, definitely one of the best films of the 80s. It's uh, probably the best sci-fi film of the 80s. Uh, but there's some very, very close There's some contenders, and that's, yeah. There's also, of course, the Terminator movie we discussed in our previous episode with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But uh, the Terminator is, uh, you know, it, it involves uh, artificial intelligence uh, taking over the world. <laughs> it involves time travel. A lot of time travel, uh, absolutely. Obviously, robots are a very important right, part right. of uh, the whole thing. Uh, t Terminator uh, is very clever. Mm -hmm. Right, it's, it 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 uses the the concept of time travel very cleverly. It's a killer action flick, and to me, Terminator. Like what I like about Terminator, the first one, is that it falls very comfortably into the B movie. <laughs> like it I is. like I like those movies that exist below normal movies. Like like uh, not, well, Blade Runner is a big Hollywood product. There's no, it's great. But it's a big Hollywood product. It is. Like in some ways, I find, but but I find a lot of charm in a movie that came out, I think, the same year, which was Brazil. Terry Gilliam made that in England on a small, relatively small budget, budget, and uh, doesn't have any big stars in it. De Niro's in it, but you know, it's kind of a silly, silly yes. role for him. But there's also an even lower level, and that's where like one of my favorite filmmakers, John Carpenter, operates, right? Yeah, because <laughs> like the '80s are all about John Carpenter. We talked about this before, like like, and to me, John, Car John Carpenter works in the B movie. Sand, sandbox. Sure. And I mean, John, John Carpenter very much came out of, like, the world of independent film. And mm -hmm. uh, Halloween, for anybody who doesn't know it, is one of the most successful independent movies of all time. Sure. Like, that movie was shot for, um, I mean, it, it cost around, like, 200 grand, which in mid-70s money is, I mean, it's not cheap. But it is still, I mean, it made many, many, many times over that. And it was, if you, you know, there's a... A lot of great stories about the making of Halloween, but it was a pretty independent affair, you right. know? It involved, like, John Carpenter and his wife at the time, like, literally, like, dressing the set with leaves. And, like, sure. you know, they only had so many leaves they had to move around. So he knows what it's like to hustle and make uh, and had no, didn't turn his nose up about what some people might consider, like, exploitative genres. Sure. Or just, you know, he's like, let's just make something good that moves. And... As part of this evidence about the 80s being like a big sci-fi decade is John Carpenter, the you know, not everyone, but he made a 
the majority of the movies he made in the 80s had a had a sci-fi bent to them. Right. And even if they weren't particularly... Ones, yeah, I mean, they may not... You could argue that the science fiction element isn't, like, the main element to it, but it's certainly there. Right. I mean, he, one of his early movies in the 80s is a remake of The Thing, which is the movie a movie about an alien That's probably invasion. the most budget he's had up to that point. Sure. Right? Before, it, the one before that was Escape from New York, which was a big hit, but that's definitely... That, that is, like, a fun exploitation film, you know? Fun science fiction concept. Yeah, we talked about that in our, uh, and if anyone's go back to our prison episode, I know you and I disagree on whether or not that's a prison (laughs) film, but but that movie takes place in the future, and there's mutants, and, uh, but yeah, so then he got a little bit, and, you know, I wonder if part of the fact that he got a bigger budget for the thing was that it was a, uh, he's got the sci-fi element. That's right, that's right. He convinced them that I need... He could maybe well, tell Ali- people. I'm I sure need Alien was a big selling alien. point to yeah. getting the thing made, or rather yeah. remade, because it is a remake of a horror. It is a remake, but uh-huh. it's uh, it's and the thing. If anyone hasn't seen it, the thing is even all these years. The thing is terrifying. The thing is a contender for one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's just fantastic. It's also a little bit of a trivia question. It, it, it's now there's been more bearded uh, Kurt Russell. But for the longest right. time, it was like, what movie featured where Kurt Russell has a beard and uh, the late, great Wilford Brimley does not have any, facial, any hair. facial hair? And that is the thing. Right. <laughs> well, we just watched it the other day with my son, and, uh, you know, he loved it. And it was, you know, and he was totally, like, commenting, like, like man, these practical visual effects are Great. are so much Great creepier, you know, because there's something there, even though you know it's a fake head with spider legs crawling out of it. Nonetheless, it's so much creepier than making that in, 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 in a computer, you know, yeah. so so that was the thing. But yeah, absolutely. And uh, Wilfred Grimley, who sadly passed away within the last week, yeah. uh, uh, was fantastic. Very very intimidating in that. That guy could be really scary. I was I was always struck by how scary Wilfred Brimley could actually be on screen when he wanted to do. One of those great character actors who uh, seemed like he was born. Uh, in his late 40s. Old. <laughs> or late 50s, man. late 40s. Well, I mean, we might as well talk now. One of the other science fiction hits in the mid-80s that was a huge hit is the movie Cocoon. Cocoon. Which is about, you know... Good segue through, good, uh, yeah. through Wilford Brimley. And uh, Wilford Big Brimley... Hit. Wilford Brimley famously, you know, plays one of the members of this retirement community in Cocoon. Uh, he plays what, you know... I haven't seen Cocoon in years, but my memory is Wilford Brimley is considered basically an elderly man in that movie. Sure. And Wilford Brimley at the time of that movie was 51 years yeah, old. Yeah. That it's like an internet yeah. joke about whenever right. other celebrities reach the Brimley age that you're actually older <laughs> than Wilford Brimley is. You know, like, for example, when the last Mission Impossible movie came out, Tom Cruise was older than Wilford Brimley was when he made Cocoon. Oh, my God. When he's running and Steve, jumping off buildings. I was buildings. not aware of this. Yeah. This is crazy. I I mean, in some ways, it just seems oh kind my, of insulting so you're tell, to so Wilford Brimley. Brimley in The Thing is like 45 years old? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Oh, my God. He's so scary in that. I know. But, uh, but so Wilford Brimley, you know, starred in uh, two of the biggest sci-fi movies of the decade. And Cocoon, when I looked it up, like, I remembered it was a popular movie I saw with very my popular. parents. I mean, it was huge. I mean, like, huge. the year it came out, it was like big one hit. of the five biggest yeah. grossing yeah. movies of the People year. People loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, it just shows you... How flexible the umbrella is here. Yeah. How inclusive the umbrella is. Because that's here. a movie about it's in 
it's basically a touching movie about aging. It's a movie about aging that that has a science fiction element, like yes. a strong science fiction element. Yes. It, and 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 so many movies were were like that. You know, yeah. so, there was so much stuff going out, and also you had a another subgenre that got became fairly prominent is the fuck the future. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> What is that called? What's what's the name for the fuck? Dystopia? Up? The dystopia. Know. Well, you know, early on in the 80s, another extremely influential action science fiction franchise, Mad Max, Road Warrior, right? Yeah. What was released in the, Mad Max originally was like 77 or something like that. And the, by the time the Road Warrior came out, it was as it was known in the U.S. But Mad Max 2, essentially, it was 82, I think, is when it came out. And, sure. man, I remember seeing that, and that was a, that was another game changer. That was a, a massive, massive leap forward in action cinema. It's, it was just absolutely stunning and, and also created this, you know, kind of punky. <laughs> I mean, it was a punk well, movie. Well, yeah, man. and, I mean, the 80s were still, it was a gigantic Cold War decade. Right. And kind of hand-in-hand hand with that was the fear of, nuclear annihilation and it was very prominent in our you know in the comic books and the movies of the 80s and it's it's kind of i i feel like the how you say that the future is bad seemed like a thing that uh there was disagreement on how the future was bad like some people would think the future is bad because we've just destroyed ourselves with nukes and some people thought the future was bad because they saw the consumerism of the 80s getting out of control to the point where like everything is bought and sold by corporations absolutely and you're just you know so, so yeah, th- so there, there are different <laughs> angles, but, right. but we can all like meet together at the barbecue and agree like, well, I mean, you've got your reason about how and I've got my reason about how, but we can agree. I mean, the, the future's fucked. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody would have come up with this shit. <laughs> this ridiculous is not like, like which future would you rather live in? The Mad Max future, right? Where you're just scrounging for survival and eating dog and, and lizards I don't, and hoping not to get like bad, gang raped but, by I mean, motorcycle gang. I would take a heavily advertised world where I got a flying car like as runner. opposed right. to like targeted Google ads, but I can't leave my house. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, or or like the the bureaucratic nightmare that is uh, Brazil, you know, which which I really it's somewhat love. Somewhat accurate. That'll be a little <laughs> bit. Well, I don't know about that, but 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 uh, but definitely definitely preferable to the to the road warrior. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. No, I would. Uh, I'd get buried in paper any day. Over absolutely <laughs> over having to survive in the desert. The world of the road warrior is very harsh. It is. <laughs> Unless you're the guy in uh, the in uh, Fury Road, he gets to play the flaming guitar. That guy looks like he's having a ball. That's, that's a, it's probably the best job you <laughs> can right, have yeah. there. It's a it's the best job that you can have there. Uh, but uh, but I tell you, uh, I love uh, I love the science fiction movies of the eighties. Well, they're, and they're so good. The and, Road Warrior series is also kind of in. A film series that started out kind of edgy, and then by the time we get to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, right? Like, it's it's not quite as... It lost its edge on the yeah. third film, and then regained it on the fourth film, oh, yeah. which was made 25 years yeah, later. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, Beyond Thunderdome was weak, but it's still quite memorable and has very good parts. But the, that Road Warrior was great, because Road Warrior combined kind of the wacky... 
like low-budget insanity of the original Mad Max movies, but with a lot less shitty dialogue, a lot less people just talking about like how society's collapsing. Puts you right there into the collapsed society. Here, go survive. And it's it's amazing. You are, you know, you're just going through it for you know, for two hours. It's unbelievable. It's a, it's a, it's a very visceral action movie. Yeah. The, by the time we get in the eighties, there's also, you know, there's a, a lot of failed experiments too. Like, uh, they famously tried to adapt, um, Dune. Dune. Uh, David did Lynch. you ever read Dune? You know, I've never, I've never read Dune. I've heard it's a very, you know, it's a series of books, uh, yeah. kind of complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they tried to make a movie out of it that, uh, Basically, nobody liked. I mean, uh, the fans of the book Dune didn't like the movie. Uh, the producers David didn't like Lynch the movie. I, David Lynch didn't like yeah. the public didn't like the movie. I think Sting had a nice time. He yeah. had a couple of nice things to say. Well, it, uh, David Lynch met Kyle MacLachlan. They went on to do some other things. That's right. He fell in love with Kyle MacLachlan, and then it resulted in a in a long uh, collaboration. And then Dune is responsible for a very significant uh, story of 80s independent cinema, which I'll maybe I'll save for the 80s independent cinema episode. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I mean, not everything can hit. I mean, Dune is a, is a ponderous movie, and they tried, and they failed, and it but was, that's a movie, again, I think, that only got greenlit in the 80s. That they saw, right. they're like, someone's they like, were like, okay, it's about... It's this popular science, right. it's a beloved science fiction book, it's kind of unwieldy, but maybe if we throw enough money at it, we hire kind of a hip young director, maybe we can make something out of this. This guy made this Eraserhead cult movie, he made The Elephant Man... Let's put this young David Lynch in there with a lot of money in a sci-fi movie. Let's see this what happens. This visionary young director, yeah. David Lynch. Incidentally, did you ever hear the story about how David Lynch was offered to direct Return of the Jedi? No. I would. There's a great... You can look it up on the internet. David Lynch himself tells it. It's a fantastic story where George Lucas tried to hire him to direct Return of the Jedi. And David Lynch claimed he knew nothing about anything in the Star Wars world. He didn't even want to go, but his agent's like... You should just go take the meeting. Yeah. And he's like, so I go and I meet George, and George has this expensive car, and he's driving me around, and then I'm in a meeting, and he's, he starts telling me about these Ewok things, and I've just got the worst headache. <laughs> I've got the worst, and then he's telling me about this other thing, and my head's just throbbing, and I get out of there, and I go, I call my agent, I said, there's no fucking way. Yeah. There's just no way I can do this. Perfect. But we almost got David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. Uh, that would have been probably more interesting than what we actually ended up getting. I'm not a giant Return of the Jedi guy, but it does its job for sure. And it's certainly a masterpiece compared to the recent Star Wars movies. But, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Uh, but, but uh, again, it's, it's, um, it's just it's such a wide umbrella, man. And then you had comedies. And then, you know, we got to talk about the science fiction comedies. Back to the Future, huge, huge hit is its own kind of trilogy and, and has remained a, a you know, without being soiled by later installments. An well, honest trilogy. Yeah. And I, it, I mean, Back to the Future to me is a trilogy the way The Matrix is a trilogy, which is in the sense that <laughs> there was a movie, there was a movie, one movie, that everyone loved, <laughs> and then they made a couple other ones and people politely be like, yeah, well, Okay. I don't know, but man. It's not a, it's not the same way that like the Star I Wars think, movies are a trilogy. I think, or... Steve, I, you are not honestly comparing the Back to the Future trilogy, which is pretty damn good, to the friggin' train wreck in slow motion that is the frickin' Matrix trilogy. trilogy? Sure. I mean, ma- the I first guess Matrix I'm comparing is cool. it. I'm comparing it in the sense that I uh, I cannot 
recount to you a single plot point from Back to the Future <laughs> 3. I know there's in one of them they go to the past, in one of them they go to the future. I think Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers is involved at some point. And uh, but I don't I don't know any much about this. Yeah, movies. you know you you're missing out, man. I highly recommend Back to the Future two and Back to the Future three uh-huh. as pretty pretty good time travel comedies, and uh, not an embarrassment to the first one, which you could not say about the Matrix for sure, okay. because to me, the last Matrix movie is pretty much an embarrassment, and and you know. But Back to the Future, you're right. It was a huge hit. Is also like I mean maybe the epitome of the '80s high concept movie i mean like it's a fantastic <laughs> it's a fantastic concept it's a fantastic comments concept and so you know so and and it's got like a certain degree of weird like freudian complexity to it as well which is kind of fun and it's genuinely clever like like well handled shit you know and one of the things about you know and this is true of just the 80s in general that so in the 70s you know the big hits of the 70s to me were either like done in a style that was either kind of holdover from the old studio days mm-hmm. or, you know, some of these more interesting, challenging films. So you get some weird hits in the 70s. Right. But there's this thing when people talk about even today of like a certain type of like just a Hollywood entertaining movie where you want a movie that's like everything about it costs a lot of money, but it's all well done. You know, like you've got a star, you've got a great story. The story is told well. Maybe you've got an entertaining soundtrack. Like the template to me for all of that started in the 80s. And Back to the Future is just an epitome of that. I mean, like Back to the Future is nobody's idea of like an independent movie, right? I mean, like it's a big old, inter- like designed to entertain you Absolutely. Hollywood film, but popcorn executed at just a great level. Right. Like, you know, like everybody brought their A game to that. It's Absolutely. well directed, the script's fantastic. Michael J. Fox is great. Absolutely. So it's great. And then they did a lot of these in the 80s. And then I feel like actually over the recent decades, some of that has almost petered out. That some of the movies that we see now are so, like, the level of care and craftsmanship seems lower. So that when you do see a movie like that, you're just blown away by like, oh, like I remember seeing, for example, we're jumping, like the movie The Martian. Right. I mean, The Martian... Is good. It's good solid. Movie. Good movie, yeah. But I don't think The Martian's a masterpiece. It's just like when you watch The Martian, you're just like, oh, this is what it's a Matt Damon Hollywood movie. And it's Ridley just Scott as well, right? Done well. Yeah. Right. You're like, it just nailed it. You're like, right. oh, it's great. Right. right. And, uh, but back but in, it's rare. It's more rare when you see The Martian, it jumps out at you for, as being so good. Back in the 80s, churning that stuff out regularly. It would have been fine. Yeah. Exactly. It would have been just like another, an, an, another solid, super entertaining, crowd pleasing film. And, and the 80s is full of them and and it's also and again you have okay you have science fiction comedies like back to the future bill and ted's excellent adventure which 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 i enjoy you know then you have science fiction horror you have predator which we talked about predator yeah and uh aliens which is kind of a it's like a triple it's a science fiction horror military absolutely combat film aliens is a fantastic film and again this was the follow-up to the terminator from james cameron and uh you know you had a terrific science fiction concept with the terminator low budget but they pulled it off it was a huge hit now he gets a ton of money to make a sequel to alien which is a straight-up horror film monster jumps out from the shadows right 
boom, he goes, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something completely different. And now it's a combat against an army of aliens. Insane, brilliant, fascinating, well done. They really don't make them like that anymore. Aliens was the first rated R movie I ever saw. <laughs> and I saw it too young. And what's really funny is, you know, like I'd never asked them about this, but when I think about how it came to be that I saw that movie, it's that my parents wanted to see that movie and didn't want to spring for a sitter right. and probably just talked amongst themselves and said, you know what? I think he can go. It <laughs> scared the shit out of me. I was uh, terrified of aliens, but it's, it's really good. I, aliens is also, you could argue the first like, like real James Cameron movie where what we think of James Cameron, where he's right. got a big budget he can direct a movie. There's a great concept. He can wow you with his special effects. There's some lines of dialogue that are so bad, but they then almost go back around to being good. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, Absolutely. Bill Paxson's whole character in Aliens is, like, super whiny. His dialogue is bad. <laughs> oh, some of the dialogue is What a star-making really, performance, Bill Paxson. God it's bless. It's great, but it's just, like, some of the lines are just cringeworthy, but yeah. everything else about the movie is great. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it, it just works, you know? The the cheesy lines work because it's a combat movie. You're going to have a bunch of meatheads saying meathead shit to each other. And and it's genuinely thrilling. Sigourney Weaver really earns her action heroine stripes in this one. It's just cool. It's, it's just cool, you know? And it's also like one of the first movies that has a female action hero. Yeah. A central character who's a woman who's kicking ass and you're never questioning it. And she's never just out there, you know, swinging her hips. They've had other, you know, kind of exploitation action heroines. Uh, Adam and I just saw one from, uh, I think it was in 1982. It's called uh, Star Crash. Ah. It's a horrible, horrible (laughs) C-level movie from the 80s. David Hasselhoff is in it, and it has a central character who's this female space pirate. But she's running around in a bikini the whole time, right? So this and it's an Italian Italian made movies. I mean, it, it, it like it's produced by somebody who makes Dino De Laurentiis look like Orson Welles. Yeah, you know, and and it's. Uh, not, not to knock Dino De Laurentiis. He's done. He did the Barbarian. <laughs> you can knock him well. a little, yeah, uh, yeah. But you know what I'm saying. This is the the production values were like two notches below Mork and Mindy, uh, and so you know, not not good. But again, <laughs> female central character, but not a real female central character. So well, that's, that's, what you got that's another difference between so an Alien, the uh, original movie, like you know Sigourney Weaver is in a weakling, but it's it's kind of like a woman overcomes type picture, you know. And then, but Aliens, she's just a flat out action star. That's exactly I mean, like right. she's a badass yeah. from yeah. the get go. Yeah, she she's... takes over. She knows how to. She she takes command. She takes command from weaker men. Uh, she's respected by her fellow soldiers, even though she's not a soldier. Um, no, she's fantastic. And, and it's a great, I mean, talk about character development. That's the biggest character development. I think in most sci-fi franchises, that Ripley arc, yeah. you know, from the first film to the, to, to aliens. I, I love aliens and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually one of my favorites. Uh, one of my top threes. I think at some point we need to talk about our top three favorite science fiction films of the 80s from any part of the umbrella. 
Oh, okay. I think that's that. I, I think we should do that. Why not? Like, what's what comes to your mind as your favorite number one science fiction movie of the eighties? Probably Empire Strikes Back. You <laughs> okay? There you go. You you you. That's absolutely viable. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's all the obvious answers. I don't know. Other than like. Like, I guess I would call The Thing a horror movie more than a... Uh... No, The Thing is a complete science fiction movie. Sure, it's a horror film, but it's science fiction. They figured out scientifically how to yeah. how to discover it. No, no, it's a science... I mean, it has science fiction. Science fiction... I don't think you're wrong. I'm just saying that, like, if I was, like... When I think of The Thing, my... It comes to mind first. I go, oh, that's one of my favorite horror movies. Okay. All right. All right. So, okay. So, you want to bump it off for another option? I don't mean to put you on the yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's the obvious ones we're talking about. It's probably like Empire. It's probably um, Star Trek Two. It's For, a good, but all these adventure movies, absolutely. You know, like you said. Uh, aliens, Blade Runner, these are all great movies. Absolutely. Well, well, for me, Aliens, definitely. Blade Runner, for sure. One of my favorite movies, period. Uh, and then, like, smaller films that are kind of out and, like, like, just weird sideways things that also kind of fit under under the umbrella. I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for B-movies, for movies that don't have huge production, especially what I call, like, lo-fi sci-fi, which is to say, like, basically... Minimal special effects or not too much, certainly nothing flashy, but something that's smart and exciting and well-directed. And the epitome of that, of, of that kind of movie for me is uh, John Carpenter's They Live. Man, I love that movie. I, could I just sadly have not seen. Around. I'm not even going to fake it. I haven't seen They Live. I know. No, I'm ashamed no to admit it. I've seen it. a lot of John Carpenter, but I, I, I haven't made it to that. But, uh, uh, it is uh, They Live. If for those who have not seen it, is uh, is a film that stars the great uh, Rowdy Ronnie Piper, right? Yeah, Roddy, the late great actually Rowdy Roddy Roddy. That's right. He was Rod, uh, but. Uh, not a person you would think of as a great film actor, of course, uh, but used very, very effectively in this essentially satire, satire-type films about it's an alien invasion film, undercover alien invasion, and when people realize that they've been invaded by aliens for possibly centuries. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, It's almost like a more satirical version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It is. Way, it's, right? very, yeah. it's very similar. It's definitely inspired by Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But it all happens from a very kind of working class, ground up perspective. So the main character is basically an unemployed indigent who travels from city to city doing odd jobs, who stumbles into these, <laughs> and what a great cheap science fiction device. He finds a pair of sunglasses. Glasses, yeah. <laughs> They're kind of Ray-Ban-like things, and they allow him to see. So So the sunglasses is this cheap thing. He puts it on, and then it goes into this special effect where, you know, with masks and stuff like that. And... Uh, and it's just such a fun satire. It's 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 a real comment on what happened in the '80s in this country and the sort of the the yuppies and all of that. I mean, that's what it was really. It's it, it's it's an explicitly political movie, uh, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. It has a fantastic seven-minute fight scene between Roddy and one of my favorite actors, Keith David, who's also, of course, in the thing. Yeah, um, and it's fantastic. Does tons of works to this day and 
and Oliver Stone collaborator and all that stuff. Great voiceover guy. But he has a fight scene uh, with Roddy in the in in the alley, and I had a pleasure of meeting Keith Davidwood one time. Oh, did I you ask him about the fight scene? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I was like, I gotta ask you about that fight scene. And he was like, hey, man. And he's like, oh, man. He's like, that took like a week to film that. It took like half of the, like it took a quarter of the entire film wow. <laughs> to film that fight scene. He said, because it was all us. It was no, there was no stunt guy. Yeah. You know? And that guy's a stunt guy and I'm not a stunt guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's tough, you know? Uh, but, uh, but uh, I, I love they live and, uh, and try to catch it every time. And it is a low budget movie. It's like the effects are pretty funny. And a lot of the dialogue is cheesy and the cinematography is minimalist. You know, there's not, not much. It's, it is from a budgetary perspective, a big step down from the thing. The thing is a high budget picture. This one is not. And even though the thing is fairly simple as well, right? It's one set, blah, 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 just a bunch of characters. Could be a play. Sure. A stage play essentially. Um, and, but, but, Highly recommend they live. You, you you do need to see it. And uh, and uh, with any warm spots in your heart? What, what what's your take on uh, 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 what's that Jeff Bridges one? Uh, Starman. Well, Star Starman, another excellent excellent John Carpenter, John Carpenter yeah. film, and that was a big hit too. Yeah. And uh, and that felt like a studio film. And Starman was like, this is uh, the the underexplored sci-fi romance, right? I mean, it's basically like a a romance movie. It's a love story, but with a science fiction element. Absolutely. And and here is just another example of the awesomeness that is the genre of science fiction. I mean, literally, you have this really excellent love story, an excellent romance that deals with with the subject of having a romance with an alien from another planet. Yeah. And it's it's really well done. One of my other favorites, which I haven't seen in forever, and I don't know when's the last time you've seen it, but I always, as a kid, quite loved the movie The Last Starfighter, which I thought was a great movie for, like, you know, like a young boy. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a coming-of-age coming film. But uh, also really tapped into the 80s, lest we forget, where uh, the first decade, it was like a video game boom. You know, it was mm-hmm. the first time anybody had video game systems in, right. their, in their home. Absolutely. And uh, arcade, I mean, I know video game arcades were around a little before, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s. But right. still, like, it really just played off on that. And The right. Last Starfighter was um, just a cute little lovely family film. Absolutely. Yeah, with- with aliens. Absolutely. I like The Last Starfighter. It's pretty good. And, and again, the whole video game theme is kind of cool because there was also Tron, which was a technologically groundbreaking film. Yeah, about Tron, But yeah. was not, you know, dealt with essentially entering the video game. Not, that was not the plot of Last Starfighter, but, but this one, it was. Yeah, Tron is a great example of a movie. And Tron, I think, was actually kind of a modest hit and certainly a cult phenomenon, but... Tron is a movie where, like, maybe they hadn't worked out quite all the kinks when they made it. That the concept no. is interesting. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, The script is very weak. Yeah. It's very, very weak. They really blew the entire wad on the visuals. And the visuals work, but th- but if you can imagine that that world with a better script, yeah, you'd have that Tron sequel that they just made <laughs> a few years ago. Yeah. 
But also, another movie where video games play a huge part is uh, War Games, which is, in fact, a science fiction film. You don't think of it, but remember, the computer becomes sentient and takes over the thing. That, Remember? That is true. That is a I science really fiction element. I thought about that of war games and the uh, the computer genre, or the uh, the robots coming to life. Well, that, that's very true. It doesn't happen in such an obvious way as in the Terminator, clearly, but it does it does it does happen. And uh, and I like war games. I haven't seen it in forever. I have a strong feeling that one would not hold up to my memory. <laughs> really? I like it. I like it. That's a good picture. I mean, it's one of those things where it was it was so rooted in the fear of nuclear con. Sure. Because again, I mean, it's extremely yeah. like it's a Cold War movie. It's, but a, then, it's uh, a super yeah, Cold it's War a, movie. It's combining Cold War fears with the, the HAL 9000. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, it, but it's told in a very pedestrian way from a point of view of a kid, you know, like a, the Matthew Broderick is like... Is very comfortable. I mean, it's certainly the most. It's that. the most warm and fuzzy movie about nuclear annihilation that I can think of. Yeah, well, near nuclear annihilation, near nuclear annihilation. I also, um, I mean, Star Trek Two is you know a very beloved kick-ass sequel, but I've really fond memories of Star Trek Four, which again, talking about the how elastic the genre is, even within uh, sequels, like even within. A set of property like Star Trek, like Star Trek Four, is basically a comedy. I mean, it's where they travel yeah. back to the present time. It's one of the right. whales. Right. It's the funniest one. It is far and away the funniest yeah. one. Yeah. And uh, and it doesn't have as much philosophy going on, no. other than the fact that you know Spock, newly brought back to life, is kind of dealing with that. Right. But, well, there's uh, a conservational message. It actually does have like a strong environmentalist message behind it, which sure, is unusual I, for a Star yes, Trek. Movie. It has a met, but I mean, it's not so much uh, philosophical pondering about like what science is doing. No, no, no. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not about it's a yeah yeah. I like I like Star Trek for a lot. I remember seeing that in the theater, uh, and uh, man, I I think that may have been the most delighted audience I've ever been. I was, I saw that with my parents and for years we all remembered that as one of our favorite times at the movies. Like we saw that like the weekend it came out right. and it was just a home run for everybody. Absolutely. We all had a great time at it. And by that point in the late eighties, like, yeah, we go to see, I mean, it's a crowd pleasing, funny family right. film that also technically is a science fiction. Right. Movie. Right. Like the science fiction elements were almost Beside the point, we just wanted to go watch a funny movie right. with these characters who we all knew already. Yeah, yeah, but again, it was it it had a solid science fiction foundation in it. It wasn't as where it wasn't a film where science fiction were, where the the scientific element was as t- tangential to it as a lot of other things that we talk about, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of other films is genuinely just like a plot device. Right, but with Star Trek, the whole like going back in time in order to rescue the whales that the future needed in order to survive is a kind of a time travel concept that's fairly clever, and uh, it was well executed. You know, it like kind of worked, and you know, while having all of this hilarious stuff about. You know, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock hanging out yeah. in San Francisco in 1987 or whatnot. But kind of going with, you know, even back to our original idea of how the 80s were the the time where science fiction not only became big money, but it became more respected or at least accepted. 
Um, the 80s were a decade where the audiences became a lot more comfortable with way more ridiculous premises as like a jumping off point. True. Like, you know, they're, they're, I feel like even the concept of, say, Back to the Future in the 70s, people were like, well, wait, what, what's this? He's going back in his mom? Like, what? Like, it just seems absurd to them, like, uh, to just your jumping off point about what right. the movie's about. But then starting in the 80s, the Hollywood got more comfortable and the audience got more comfortable with just, like, accepting, like, the Star Trek Four movie. Like, you know, you and I, our memory, like, oh, what's Star Trek Four? Oh, it's, like, it's really funny and there's an environmental thing. Yeah. We're just kind of glossing over the fact that it involves time travel and rescuing whales to, like, power a world or something. Like, right. that's almost like, that's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get to the jokes and, like, you know, right, everybody. Right. Well, and, those are the kind of, that, that's big popular cinema. And, again, that, but that's, that's a change, I'm saying. I don't feel like that was that way in the 70s. Yeah, like, when right. you think about, like, what were the big hits of the 70s, none of them were like, you know that big hit in the 70s that involved, like, the guy was struck by lightning, but he has to, like, get his parents back together, except one of them's, like, in the future. Like, no, there's no movie like that. <laughs> Whereas now I could be like, oh, yeah, I remember. Was that in the 80s? I think. Did William Hurt? He was in that, I think. for And, and that's continued to this day. Oh, I mean, like. the Altered you know, States is another. William Hurt, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the one where he de-evolves while in an isolation tank. It's a big drug science fiction movie kind of a head trip thing William Hurt to me is an actor that I've always I've never quite been certain if he's is he insane I mean <laughs> I think I he was know. just drunk for a while but a shit ton uh, of work he gets a shit ton of work uh, but uh, but that was a good one that's one of my favorites but uh, god it's just it's like the amount of excellent science fiction cinema coming out of the 80s is mind boggling Steve it's hard for me and I feel like we're bouncing around a lot well but I feel similar to the decade of the 80s I was saying like science fiction boom of the 80s as the decade went on it kind of lost its steam a little <laughs> like, it did. I mean all these things we're talking about most like 90% of these movies are on the first half of the decade true true what do we have towards the end of the decade that stands out to you obviously in the, going into the 90s you have Terminator 2, but the movie preceding Terminator 2 is, in fact, The Abyss, which is an 80s movie. Yes. And this was a giant, you know, revolutionary from a technical perspective film. James Cameron, James Cameron again, of course. James Cameron, of course, like getting going real big now. And that was a little bit of a disappointment, right? I mean, that yeah. was, you felt like it was a little bit of a, you know, certainly impressive, impressive visually, good cast. Something was a little, little off. Something was a little off, and that movie was a little off just for everybody. Like I feel like no one was satisfied with. Yeah. You know, it, it's not a great adventure movie. It's a little light philosophically. It's just. Yeah. One of those and movies. It's pretentious where, as shit as well. Yeah, but I mean, no one came out of the abyss feeling like I got what I wanted from that movie. Right. Right. No, uh, the the abyss was uh, the abyss was a tough one. Other than James Cameron's effects guy, who maybe. Who maybe got exactly what he did. Well, th then you have, of course, David Cronenberg's work, which we haven't talked about, falls completely into another dimension. Like, to me, Cronenberg sort of, like, lives in a world where, like, David Lynch is nearby, you know, may maybe, uh, maybe Carpenter is in the same town, but not real close, but still, you know, like, he's a, you know, very um, idiosyncratic. Cronenberg is a... Uh... I always think of him as obsessed with the body. 
Like uh, true, a true. lot of Cronenberg movies just involve mutilations to the body, adjustments uh-huh. to the body. Right. Uh, you know, there's Existence, there's Crash, there's Dead Ringers. There's, of course, you know, his biggest hit, I think, not only of the 80s, but I think total. Like, I think the biggest money-making thing David Cronenberg was ever involved in was, of course, his remake of The Fly. And that's that's a, that's a movie that really pops in my head as a... That's another science. That's a science fiction film, even though it's also a horror film, even though it's a weird psychological ma- descent into madness film. Well, the fly. Do you remember? We might edit this out. I don't know, but the original fly with Vincent Price. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen it? Yeah. Is it straight or is it a comedy? It is not a comedy. Okay. It is straight. Although it's kind of hilarious in many ways. It's kind of hokey unintentionally, but well, it's not Well, the special a... effects are weak. You know, the guy who turns into a fly just turns, you know, like first he's a big fly and then he eventually turns into a little fly. I mean, it's just weird. Well, the, you know, the fly and even the thing are examples of another thing in the 80s, not so much in sci-fi, but in other aspects of the 80s, certainly in like some of the comic books of the 80s, is it takes something from the past, but the 80s are like, what if we took this thing from the past that was kind of innocent, but we made it like gritty? Yeah. Like we made it dark. They learn how to and grit they, shit And up. that's, yeah. So the fly is a very simple, if you ever even just see stills of the original fly, you know, it, it's cheese ball looking. It's a cheesy sci-fi film. But someone yeah. said, let's remake this cheesy sci-fi film, but really, like, go in deep with it. Well, that, that, that was David Cronenberg, and, and he really made it his own, and it was a... It, it's it's terrific. It's got a clever script. It's got great performances from Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, and... Yeah, and I mean, The Fly great. is great. It, it is a wonderful. fantastic, apart from being a huge hit for David Cronenberg, yeah. it's a great movie. But, yeah, it's a great movie, and it's a great movie about relationships. And, you know, again, like most movies, but certainly a lot of sci-fi movies operate in this realm of metaphor. That's the other one, though. Like, I mean, The Fly, I think, is mostly considered a horror movie more than a science fiction movie. But, Absolutely. Uh, but obviously but horror and science fiction blend together, Steve, just like horror, science fiction, and comedy. Science fiction is like this parasite that can gleam onto other life forms and kind of transform them into science fiction. That's yeah. the special power of science fiction. And then, of course, all of this, all of this culminates in science fiction essentially creating the superhero genre because yeah. superheroes are kind of science fiction. Sure. Yeah, almost by the definition. I mean, like the I mean, original superhero concept was, uh, you know, most of... The superheroes, when their origins are from, you know, scientific accidents. Well, I mean, Superman two is uh, science fiction. I mean, how is it? Is it? Is it anything but science fiction? Anyway? That's true. Superman two really, which most people consider the best of the Superman movies, lays in heavily about Superman's alien origins. Like yeah, uh, the uh, the villains from Superman two are. Clearly not of this world, and uh... yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a sci-fi movie, and that, of course, then dovetails into where we're at right now. <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah, it's well, it's... Man, maybe not right now. Maybe up pre-COVID, because we're living in a time where things are going to be pre-COVID and post-COVID. Pre-COVID, the world was taken over by by. I, you know, superhero movies, intellectual property. We'll talk more about it in subsequent episodes on this. But the entire science fiction thing just kind of like careens at the end of the 90s and then slowly results in what? Batman? 
the 89 Batman, is that it? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of almost the first modern superhero movie in yeah. terms of, like, it was an event. It was an event. It changed. It, like, it, it piqued interest for other superhero yeah. characters. And it was well enough done that it was, you know... Yeah, I mean, it is people, when you, apparently. you know, in the history of superhero movies, it's kind of interesting that these Superman movies are almost like an anomaly, that they they were first, they were successful, they all made a lot of money, and uh, they weren't, they were straight. I mean, they weren't considered no. hokey, per no. se. No. Um, well, Superman 4. Well. and 4, maybe. Anyway, but the point is that they weren't, Everybody acts like from Tim Burton's Batman on, people started to take the superhero movies a little more seriously. Like no. you would, like, and everything before Batman is considered like any attempt at a superhero movie just came out cheesy and hokey right, right. and bad. No, Superman was with strict. the exception of these Superman yeah. movies that everyone for they just exist at the same time of all these other failed experiments. Right, right. Well, failed experiment. They also part of this these giant hits like. You know, the first two Superman movies are huge hits, and they were right around the time of the Star Wars movies, you know, and they were kind of part of that. And they were, yeah. they were part of the fantasy thing that Star Wars is and stuff like that. And eventually that just, you know, that just brings us to, there's still plenty of science fiction films being made. There's tons of science fiction shows. Again, we live in a post-COVID time. Yeah. We have no idea what's coming. But science fiction is still like the bread and butter of Hollywood, Steve. Yeah. The big movies but it did, are sci-fi. It, I feel like it did peter out a little bit. That By the time we got to, you know, apart from Terminator 2, after that, it felt like everything that came out was not as beloved and kind of disappointing. And I just remember going to a screening of, like, The Fifth Element in, like, the late 90s. And we all kind of enjoyed it. It's one of those movies that uh, I had a great time at the theater, and then like a month later, you're like, wow, I took that a little too seriously. But, uh, <laughs> but we're all pleased because it just felt like it had been a long time since we enjoyed a science fiction right, movie. Right. Like, and then it was a little bit of a, a dearth of them in the, right. the mid-'90s. Fifth, Fifth Element was also like a super fun. It, it, it had fun with science fiction. It was exceptionally colorful. Science fiction really got into a rut post-Blade Runner. Everything was dark. Post Blade Runner, also post Road Warrior to some extent. The future was always dark and blah, blah, blah. There weren't enough colorful films. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Certainly yeah. starting in the 80s or in the early 80s, I remember going to see, speaking of Dino De Laurentiis, Flash Gordon, well, which is right. a silly a ass movie. 80s movie. It's a silly ass movie, but it's. It's really enjoyable. I really like it. I, I like Flash Gordon. It's fun. It's it's super entertaining. Um, and again, another kind of like you think of Flash Gordon, and it's sort of, it's weirdly iconic because it exists in its own world that nobody really played in in a serious way. Like, it still is a little, the effects are so-so, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's still fun. It still doesn't take itself seriously. And it's kind of it's kind of a good early and and again it goes with your early theory that the early '80s everything was kind of set up it's that post Star Wars boom and then yeah, boom and then by the late '80s it started kind of yeah. ebbing and 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 the audience got tired of it but but again just such a huge huge field of quality material that's fondly remembered by a lot of people we'll never yeah. see a time I mean like when that most again. people think about their favorite science fiction movies of all time of any decade. 
-hmm. It's hard to imagine that anybody's list of, you know, five or ten best sci-fi movies doesn't include Aliens or Blade Runner. Or E.T. Exactly. I mean, and we didn't even talk about E.T. or Spielberg for that matter. Yeah, I know. I mentioned the very beginning, but E.T., I mean, obviously it was just a monster. Yeah, certainly a gigantic hit. I remember, was it... (laughs) There was a knockoff of E.T., I can't remember. I, I want to say Roger and Me, but that's about the T. <laughs> but there were all sorts of, like, uh, E.T. knockoffs after E.T., of course. They're, like, right. uh, lovable aliens, and they almost all flopped. Exactly. But, uh, they almost all did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, E.T. E. was giant. Also, I mean, arguably Spielberg's best movie. I'm going to argue that it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I dislike E.T. I've always you disliked I E.T. Dis- I actually dislike E.T. Wow, I think, this is a hot take I here at the end of this hot episode. Take. <laughs> hot take, you dislike E.T. I dislike E.T. It annoys me. Oh, my me. goodness. It annoys me. It annoys me. It annoys me. It, it, I wasn't a giant fan of it when I saw it as a kid. I thought it was overblown. It was, it's, it's you know, like the every. the biggest disagreement in film-driven history. It's very possible, wow. Steve. I did not. Even, When's the last time you've seen E.T.? Uh, a few years ago. Okay. Didn't wasn't super impressed. Wasn't I mean, listen, it's a lovable movie. It's a, again, it's sort of a metaphor for family and you know, and and divorce and all of this stuff. It's um, I don't know. I find it cloying and a little bit like emotionally. Well, needy. okay. Uh, but it, that's almost like saying you think people curse a lot in a Tarantino movie to say that you find Steven Spielberg's movies a, a little. Sappy and emotionally cloying. I mean, that's Spielberg's. I think he's at his worst at ET. I think Ah. in ET, that that is really his main mode. And I don't dislike Steven Spielberg. I'm a huge fan of Steven Spielberg. I just, for me, ET is on the lower lower rung of uh, Steven Spielberg movies. Wow. See, I I think ET. It's it's an incidental uh, sci fi film. I mean, what's sci fi about ET? He lands here, then the kid adopts (laughs) him like a fucking dog, and they they fall in love, and then he takes him back, and then they figure out that there's a spaceship coming to get him, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, Where's the science fiction? Where's the science? Okay. All right. I I need a little rebuttal time here. (laughs) Wow. Well, uh, first of all, I think E.T. is fantastic. It's a really great movie. uh, It's also E.T. all these decades later is still magic with young children. Uh, Both I have a son who's 12 and a daughter who's four. And both of them, the first time they saw E.T., were instantly hooked. I mean, this movie from 1982, decades later... Both of them, E.T. worked on it the same way it worked on me as a child. They were like, E.T. is the best. Like, it just, they were a hook, line, sinker for everything about E.T. Um, E.T. is very well done. And the science fiction element, first of all, there's the notion that there are alien creatures with advanced technology who are, care about, uh, like, plants in the Earth. There's kind of an environmental element to E.T., that E.T. features visitors that are not trying to conquer us. Friendly, friendly aliens. Trying to hunt us. They're actually, all they're trying to do is uh, they're botanists. They're uh, gathering samples for uh, Link. And uh, they, they... What about the anal probing? There's no anal probing in E.T. It's off screen. Wait a second. (laughs) But, uh, I was pretty sure. Are you sure they didn't? They anally no, probed. No, no human goes on a no. Oh, does ET get anally probed? He That's probably possible. Does. does ET have an anus? Remember when they catch him? 
I don't know. He certainly has briefly, a larger, well, lower see, you know, size. I wondered for a while that with E.T.'s long arms, I, I briefly wondered, would E.T. be a good swimmer? Almost like a penguin. You they're know? very thin. They're very thin arms, though. And this they are, yeah. They're not real tiny. muscular. Just go right. yeah. yeah, he's just very, very poorly adapt to, adapted to life on this planet with, no, no, with the tiny no. legs and everything. He's just not meant for this world. Well, I mean, the whole friendly alien thing, that's, that, that's been around. You know, that, that, that's been around since for a long time in science Well, I'm not saying E.T. invented the concept of the friendly alien, but I will say that E.T. is maybe like the epitome of the friendly alien. It, is, it has I mean. become the epitome because of the success of the film and the popularity of the film. Once again, you know... It's what also like a really strong, you know, in the non-science fiction world, like, uh, I'm sorry, the non-science fiction aspect of E.T. is E.T. is really one of the hallmarks of the genre of lonely kid gets some information that finds out he's special, you know, right. See Harry Potter, right. you know, like see King Arthur. Right. But, uh, but E.T. is very much in that realm, but yeah, no. Well, so e. I, Andre and I strongly disagree strongly about disagree. the, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. I <laughs> yeah. just, I think it's, I, 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 I understand the, the sentimental attachment to E.T., but I just don't feel it holds up in retrospect, but that, that's just me. Um, so clearly, I'm so glad we finally have a disagreement, Steve. You have no idea how enjoyable <laughs> a, good, a good debate is to me because we agree on so many films. But, I mean, I think it's a, we can definitely agree on how, how difficult it was to actually even pick something to talk about in, ter- in terms of just an embarrassment of riches of excellent science fiction films that yeah. came out in the eight, 1980s. And, uh, and I think that's the, the science fiction as a genre coming to the fourth of, Holly- of Hollywood product in the 80s really, for better or worse, changed the way we consume film. Yeah. I mean, uh, kind of a party note when I was looking about doing my research. I don't, did you realize that two of the biggest stars of the 80s, Sylvester Stallone and uh, Tom Cruise, did not make a science fiction movie? Interesting. Uh, like Tom Cruise, you could possibly argue legend, which is a little bit more of a that's fantasy. fantasy. Yeah. That's but uh, that's it. No uh, Yeah, no that's an interesting point. Well, Tom Cruise certainly made up for it. He Stallone made up for it later. And Stallone had uh, Judge Dredd. Yes. Uh, and, you know, of course, as a guest star in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Every major Hollywood star essentially has done sci-fi movies. That didn't, that shit didn't exist prior to the 80s. Okay, in the 80s, it made you big Hollywood, I mean, was friggin', did Cary Grant make any sci-fi movies? Did Humphrey Bogart make any sci-fi movies? I mean, literally, it was unheard of. Now you got, the 80s comes along, boom. That is the main, the main thing that Hollywood puts out. And it's good. But where it's led us to is here, which is less good. Because we're living in a dystopian science fiction film now. <laughs> With our little masks. Ah, uh, well, what are you going to do, Steve? It's as good a time as any to wrap it up. Absolutely, guess, right? my friend, absolutely. We will be back with Film Driven. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Askin. We'll see you next time with a discussion of another aspect of the films of the 80s. That's right. If we survive this thing.